1: Using your home as a piggy bank, should we be worried that equity-rich homeowners in the southeast are remortgaging to release cash? And talking of cash, the recent volatility in stock markets means many investors are sitting on rather more of it than usual. Our new columnist Moira O'Neill joins me to discuss what the optimal level of cash might be. And getting more women to invest. The latest research suggests men and women have a different approach to managing their investments. So what could investors and the financial advice industry glean from this data? Welcome to the FT Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you this week's money news. In the decade following the financial crisis, property prices have soared. Now, it's also true that more recently house prices and transaction levels have fallen back. But a data analysis conducted for FT Money shows that overall mortgage debt is still rising. Want to know why? Well, James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money, is here in the studio to explain. Welcome, James. Thank you. So these figures on mortgage
2: debt show that something odd is going on. What's happening? Well, normally um, mortgage debt, and that, uh, by that I mean the outstanding stock of, of total debt, so that's, that's debt minus payments that you might make. Normally, that tracks quite closely against housing market activity. So the the, the total number of sales that, that go on, and you can look at this on a line chart going back at least ten years. They follow each other quite closely, and that makes perfect sense. You know, the more the more houses people buy, the more debt they have to, and the more expensive those houses are, the more debt they have to take out to 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 fund those deals. Um, but what's been going on, and this is, a, this is about the south of England, uh, there's been going on in the south of England. When you break those figures down and they were, they were analysed for us by HomeTrack, which is a housing market analyst, you find that those two have diverged. So more debt is being taken out in the south of England just at the point when uh, transactions have fallen off. And... Um, Just to give you a sense of the scale of it, debt is being taken out at a rate four times in in, in London, at four times the rate it is in the rest of the country. And this is basically people taking equity out of their home.
1: So that would be why it's focused on the south-east because presumably that's where property prices have zonked up the highest.
2: Absolutely. The south is where we've seen by far the biggest gains in house prices over the past ten years. Um, London... Uh, According to figures from Savills, the estate agent, London has accounts for 87% of the total housing value gains seen since 2007. And there's quite a lot of headroom in terms of equity. So if you look at the total outstanding stock of mortgage debt, it's 1.4 trillion at the moment. But then, if you look at the total amount of housing equity in the UK, that's 5.3 trillion. So there's quite a lot to play with, based
1: on the projections of what current house prices um, are are worth. Yeah, that's again that's another
2: another Savile's estimate.
1: So this this is the key question, isn't it? With all of this remortgaging activity, how how long are the are the property prices going to stay that high up for? But you also found out what people are using the money for when they're remortgaging and withdrawing equity. Yes,
2: I mean, if they're not taking out mortgage debt to buy houses, which we know they're not, um, or they're not uh, you know, in, in growing numbers, what are they using it for? It's It's the classic things like home improvements and extensions and loft conversions and things like that. Um, You know, that's particularly popular in London because stamp duty is now at such a height that it's more expensive to move Mm. and therefore people are are staying and improving their properties and using the equity to do that. Uh, But there's other interesting things like university fees, you know, student loans. People are deciding to, to you know, pay uh, up, up front for their children to go to university, and and one big high street lender told us that, that they get this sort of spike in summer as people remortgage to do this.
1: Goodness, um, me.
2: and it, even in uh, obviously in private school fees, although that's a smaller uh, size of market. But well, that's I can say, understand. Well, they've the risen so so far in yeah. the last decade that people are quite. You know, keen On to the do student
1: that. loans point, I mean. It's a tax, not a loan. Well, exactly.
2: Yeah. So there are question marks about whether you should do that. But the, um, the other thing is obviously, obviously the bank of mum and dad. is uh, bone lad. That we've heard where um, people are drawing on their own housing equity to help uh, their children or their grandchildren get their own first foot on the housing ladder. Then just one thing to mention is that it's become a bit easier for older people to uh, to, to take out a mortgage in recent years and so or to remortgage. And so uh, that's another factor that's fed into this, particularly because older people have bigger houses uh, often and they have a greater share of that housing in the south-east so they can tap more equity
1: So some of the uses of these this money, I mean, obviously getting equity out of your home to use to fund your retirement, I can see the logic in that. Using the equity to pay for home improvements, which are no doubt going to boost the value of your home, I can see the logic in that. But do lenders draw the line, any of these uses, or are any of them a cause for concern?
2: They do draw the line. They have, um, they have certain things. They don't like you losing it, funnily enough, for gambling. <laughs> um, they don't like you to, to take a loan out and pay your tax bills off uh, or to consolidate your credit card debt. Anything that, that could just be subject to a sort of spiral mm. of further debt, really. And also, a lot of them don't like it for business purposes because it's using a residential loan for for, for commercial reasons. But you can, you know, if if you want to invest, um, mainstream lenders won't won't give you money to do that normally. But if you're, you know, of a sufficiently high income or high wealth, and a private bank will will generally not have a problem with you taking out money to to put it elsewhere, particularly if you invest it through them.
1: Well, <laughs> a cause for concern indeed. Well, thank you very much there to James Pickford, Deputy Editor of FT Money. You can read the full article and over 100 comments um, from FT readers online now. The article's called London Property Owners Use Their Homes as Piggy Banks and find that on our website at ft.com slash money. Still open for comments if you would like to add your two penneth worth. How much cash are you holding in your portfolio? combination of Brexit uncertainty and markets in the US reaching fresh all-time highs is a heady combination for UK investors. So cashing out part of your portfolio, or switching into cash, may seem an alluring safe haven. But there's lots to consider, says FT Money's new regular columnist Moira O'Neill, who's head of personal finance at Interactive Investor. She joins me in the studio now. Welcome, Moira. Hi, Claire. Well, should I say, Welcome back. Because before we talk more about cash, you're no stranger to this podcast.
0: No, I have been on it before when I was on Investors Chronicle as personal finance editor there. And I've since been editor of
1: MoneyWise too. Yes. So we're very glad to have you writing in the FT Money section. And in your first column for us this week, you set out the pros and cons of holding cash. Talk us through it. I think it's really important to think about your cash
0: holdings in your portfolio at the moment because so many people are, are worried and we we have seen through our own customer data that people are holding slightly more cash than they they have been on average and there are there are very much pros and cons of this. Mm. So cash can be a legitimate investment tool. So you can think about cash cash as being one of your key assets that you hold alongside your stocks and shares and your fixed income and maybe a bit of commercial property too. And you do need to think very carefully about, about it. But you're also holding cash in your savings accounts. So for an emergency fund or For a a buffer, if you're drawing income in retirement, you might be wanting to hold a year or two in cash just to make sure that you can weather the ups and downs of stock markets. I think you need to think about those two things differently. You need to think about how much cash do I need to have in my savings and also how much cash do I need to have in my investments. They're very different things. Now, the investment bit, you could have cash if you're... Worried about a potential fall in the market, you could have cash as a opportunity fund mm. for, for buying in when when you get a bit of a dip. Those are very legitimate things to do with your cash. But um, if you're holding cash because you can't think of anything to invest in, that's bad. So the, the inertia that grips a lot of investors—you can't find any decent opportunities. Possibly, you need to be looking further. And. It's possible that investors may be holding more cash than they actually realise. Yeah, absolutely. So when you drill down into the actual investments um, that you're holding, if you're holding funds, um, you may be holding more cash because a lot of active fund managers have been going to cash within their own funds. Um, So you need to look at the fact sheet for the fund and check what's actually in the fund. And that could
1: be, as yeah. you said, for quite legitimate reasons, they're building up a, you know, a war chest, if you like, to go shopping with when the market falls. But nevertheless, you'll be paying them a fee for managing your money, which is being, being held in cash, not doing very much. Now, you suggest in the column that readers should spend some time creating their own set of investment rules to govern how much cash they have. Give us a brief um, run through of that. I do.
0: Um, I think you need to think about what's right for you in terms of your risk. I mean, on average, there's something called the FTSE Private Investor Indices, and they're a bit of a good benchmark for what private investors should be doing within their portfolios. And on average, they have about 8% um, in cash, maybe 10% max. So consider that as a starting point. And also um, think about rules around how you're going to... Regulate the investments within your portfolio. So are you going to have some rules about when you buy and sell? Mm -hmm. So if some go up, are you going to sell out and rebalance so that you've got the same uh, structure of your portfolio? And also, are you going to make sure that um, that cash level stays the same? And also review it because your own attitude to risk may change as you go through your life stages so just make sure you regularly review
1: how much risk you feel you can take on. Well, thanks very much there to Moira O'Neill, Head of Personal Finance at Interactive Investor. You can read her first column for FT Money, How Much Cash Should I Hold in My Portfolio, which is online now at ft.com slash money. And she's on the back page of the money section inside Saturday's edition of the FT Weekend newspaper too. And finally, we return to a popular topic on the FT Money podcast, how to encourage more women to invest. As you know, the statistics show us that women are less likely to invest in stocks and shares (ISAs) than men are. And experts have pontificated that this could be down to a lack of confidence, an aversion to risk, or even, considering problems like the gender pay gap, a lack of spare money to invest. This week, a new study by EY Serent sheds some light on how the approach to managing investments differs between the sexes. And Jill Lofts, head of wealth and asset management at EY, joins me now in the studio to discuss. Welcome, Jill thank you very much so according to your research the biggest gender investment gap if you like is that female investors say they prefer face-to-face advice why do you think this is
3: fundamentally i think it's down to how trust is built with female investors and what they value women view achieving their personal goals as more important than investment performance. So a deep understanding by the advisors of the personal goals and the priorities is vital to satisfying female clients. This provides a solid foundation for every other aspect of the service, whether that be transparency, security, accuracy. Maybe let me take transparency as an example. So women place particular value on advisors who can clearly explain their investment views and decisions. And clear, substantive explanations are an important driver of trust. So when you look at it from those perspectives, what women value and the personal service that they're looking for, a lot of that today is difficult to achieve online or through digital channels.
1: Absolutely. And as well as being more likely to self-manage their investments without the help of an advisor, men were more likely to be using those online tools to do so. So that could partly explain why one of your other main findings, when you asked both sexes what they disliked about the financial advice market, men said that they were put off by high fees, whereas women were more likely to be put off by the advisor's lack of
3: knowledge. Absolutely. So there's there's a fair amount of research, as you said earlier, which suggests that women are, let's say, less confident with investment terminology than men but interestingly enough they are more likely to admit a lack of expertise mm. and they're more willing to be educated um, and of course if i was to use the stereotypical analogy of women are more likely to ask for directions than men you probably get a sense of what i'm talking about here so you know and what are we talking about when we, when we when we say that women are keener to be educated more likely to admit that they lack the financial expertise It could be that they want to have discussions around particular market circumstances or around particular personal circumstances. So if there's volatility in the market, they may want to have a discourse around that. Or if there is, let's say, inheritance events that have occurred, they may want to have a discourse around that, not just with themselves but with their other family members as well. So
1: holding that thought about how women hold their overall investment goals um, higher than managing maybe the day-to-day movements in their portfolio this is borne out in your survey because we found that women check their investment performance far less frequently than men but then i looked at that result jill and thought well is that necessarily a bad thing because obviously chopping and changing all the time
3: racks up lots of fees yeah absolutely so i wouldn't necessarily say it's a bad thing at all i think what's interesting is that we've highlighted a difference. Clearly. Your goals, your personal circumstances, you know, kind of where you are in your life events, they will all have impacts in terms of, you know, what your objectives are. So if you are looking for a very long term, let's say, pension savings, then checking that on a daily basis and tinkering with it permanently could, of course, have a detrimental effect on the performance. So what we're really saying with these results is we've noticed a difference And actually, perhaps what we would do is encourage women in particular, because of the difference, to engage more with the investment process and their wealth managers. So, considering the
1: results of your survey and the context of the other research we've discussed about women investment, do you think a different approach is needed by advisors? Or should women be doing something differently?
3: Great question. And of course, I'm tempted to say just advisors, but I think it's probably both. Now, the Centre of Talent Innovation a couple of years ago did some global research on um, how women feel about their advisors. And in the UK, 73% of women said they felt that their advisors misunderstood them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty stark thing statistic. So I do think there's quite a lot for advisors to do and I put them probably into three key areas. The first of all is getting the mix right between digital and human interaction. We've talked already a little bit about the human side but women will also engage with digital and that is an important channel particularly social media or where there's a communication let's say chat or email or video links. Women also are much more likely to share their experiences online than than men so whilst we say that the human side is really important you know the overall mix between what you're offering through the digital channel and the human channel is equally important I think the other aspect that I would look at is the face-to-face engagement itself which we believe needs to shift so today very much in the financial advisor bucket and we would suggest that that ought to move to a financial coach bucket Mm. we believe women are looking for a you know lifetime financial coach that will work with them on their personal goals through their life events not just with themselves but with their family and in a much more collaborative and consultative fashion than they're currently receiving so
1: instead of telling them what to do inspiring them um, with what they can do with Absolutely. their money
3: and then for women i would just say finally you know as we said just earlier on it is really about getting more engaged
1: well We certainly like to think that our listeners are engaged on the FT Money podcast, but thanks very much there to Jill Lofts of EY. You can read the full news story about the EY Research in FT Money section of the FT Weekend newspaper on sale this Saturday or read us online now at ft.com slash money. That's it from The Money Show this week. If you would like to get in touch with our team of experts, then email us the address money at ft.com. You can also send us any thoughts you have on any of the topics we've discussed on the podcast today and follow us on Twitter at FT Money. We'll be back at the usual time next week. Goodbye.